Welcome to a very special edition, another very special edition of the Scottish Libertarian Podcast. Today, Anthony Samarov, my esteemed co-host, is going to be in the enviable position of defending capitalism from the ravages of Marxist predations. And joining us on the show today, uh, a very special welcome to Austin Smith, coming to us from Orange County via Dublin. How's things right. in Dublin? That's yeah. right. You know what? We've been having great weather, and literally, as soon as I say that, I look out the window, and it fucking started to rain. So, uh, well, we must have sent you over the Scottish. Yes, thank you. Weather. That's just the predations of us greedy capitalists <laughs> yeah. trying to ruin everything by raining on your parade. Oh, now, right. Austin Smith is the co-host of Owls at Dawn podcast and they come at political issues from a progressive lefty so how would you describe it um i'm not really fond of trying to pin down certain things like that we both studied religion in our early years uh, we met actually in undergrad we both uh, majored in theology and philosophy and then we did master's degrees in the uk and then have gone on to do further research and he's now a professor in southern california so i mean you know, we studied Marx, but we also studied kind of social gospel liberation theology as well as conservative evangelical uh, theology. And um, in grad school, studied politics and philosophy and literature. So, you know, we definitely come from a critical perspective, let's say that, more than anything. And I think that's the most important thing is is we're, we're trying to analyze society and concepts and ideas and politics from a, from a decidedly critical perspective rather than trying to encamp ourselves within a school of thought. Right, you're trying to get to the bottom of things and uh, sort out falsehood from truth. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Maybe create, maybe create a little truth rather than just try to discover some pre-existing truth. Hmm. Create truth, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'm not sure if I know if truth can be created rather than just I'm sure, I'm sure we'll discover that throughout the course of the conversation. That is yeah. what you lucky viewers will get. So <laughs> the creation of truth. Um, shall we head it off? Yeah, dude, I'm ready when you are. Cool. So you mentioned that you're a Marxist, I believe. Like, do, is, is that true? And when you say that you're a Marxist, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, I mean, all these identities and labels are, are slippery anyway, right? Um, there are a lot of people who fight within the Marxian paradigm, let's say, to actually try to define what Marxism is. Um, when I say that I am a Marxist, and I sometimes say that with a little bit of levity, like a little bit tongue-in-cheek, mm. because I actually don't believe in the existence of being. Rather, uh, my PhD researcher was on uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, a French existentialist philosopher, mm -hmm. and he basically argues in a a very popular text that he wrote in a lecture that he gave that um, he says existence precedes essence. And what he means by that is you exist first and then essences are only constructed later through sort of the various interplay of inter-individual and social and political uh, engagements. So uh, what you have is existence first and especially right. as human beings, you're constantly overcoming whatever beings are being slapped onto you. So um, I, I think I would say that I'm a Marxist insofar as the general thrust of my impetus is inspired by a sort of distancing and criticism of exploitative social relations, most notably, which we understand in the form of capitalism. So that's kind of what I mean. I'm more interested in the disposition rather than okay. the absolute ideas. 
So I'm okay. a Marxist, but I'm also highly critical of various aspects of Marx as well. Okay, great. I would just want to note that uh, I'm sure we'll circle back to this, but when you say exploitative social relations, that is part of the thrust of why we are here yeah. to discover if these social relations are indeed exploitative and to begin with the presumption that they are is to beg the question. So I hope we'll be able to circle back and um, discover whether the relationship between a capitalist and his employees is indeed exploitative or not. But I don't think that's a premise that um, one is entitled to from the outset of the debate. Okay. Well, yeah, and, and, and just so I can be clear too, when I say exploitative and oppressive social relations, I'm not simply front-loading my argument by okay. assuming that capitalism does that. Um, I'm actually talking about anything. Okay. I don't care if it's monarchical rule. I don't care if it's colonial oppression. I don't care if it's a tyrannical father inside of a household. My sure. point is, is the um, that I think a Marxian disposition is most keenly contracted around the idea that what we are concerned with, whether you're an anarcho-Marxist or you're a straight up like analytical Marxist or you're a structuralist Marxist, I don't care the tradition. I think the impetus is the eradication of hierarchical oppression. And so that's okay. the issue. So wherever we find it, I don't give a fuck if it's in a boyfriend-girlfriend, yeah. boyfriend-boyfriend relationship. If there's any sort of asymmetry of power, then that's that something violated. Yeah, well, do you have a, a problem with the asymmetry of power per se or only the exploitation of the asymmetry of power? What do you mean by the exploitation of the asymmetry? Well, you know, if I, let's take your father uh, yeah. or, you know, or, or someone, someone um, owns a premises and someone is living in that premise, you can say, okay, well, these are my rules. If you don't like them, then I prefer you stay somewhere else. There is an sure. asymmetry of power, but unless... But that doesn't necessarily mean that that power is being exploited. Um, if the rules are reasonable and the tenants got other options, then it's not exploitative to say, you know, I don't want you to piss on the living room floor. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, it's also important to note that pragmatism and um, social construction and the shifting of social norms is also important to understand. And so, yeah, I have a room and I would appreciate it, Anthony, if you come over and hang out with me that you don't take a piss on my floor. I would appreciate that. Um, but what I don't think is that I don't think that bemoaning exploitative power relations is the same thing as bemoaning pragmatic constructions of the expression of power. And this is going to get a little abstract and I'll try to be as clear as I can here, but as much as I am a Marxist, I'm also uh, a student of the school of like radical continental French philosophy, which is also sure. critical of Marx. So Michel Foucault, mm -hmm. a guy named Gilles Deleuze, um, and then even Sartre to an expective or per, to, to an extent. Um, and so what, um, what some of them would want to argue, particularly Deleuze and Foucault following like Friedrich Nietzsche, is that power is everywhere. Power isn't mm -hmm. bad. Power isn't good. Power flows right? So power is something that just exists. By me raising my hand right now, I'm, I'm exhibiting power, right? Sure. Um, by me talking right now and you not talking, there is an asymmetry of power from the perspective of me talking. Now, okay. simultaneously, the fact that I'm on your podcast 
there's an asymmetry of power that you have invited me as a guest onto your podcast to allow me to speak, right? So there's mm -hmm. this swirling confluence of all of these various different expressions of power. And so I don't want to say that power or asymmetry of power as such is morally bad, right, but okay, it's, it's kind of dissecting in what ways do we understand the concentration of power and then how does that manifest itself in various social relations. So that's, I think that's yes, where we have okay. to go. Yeah. So we're on the same page so far. Um, I think what you've said reminds me of a quote from Noam Chomsky, which I like, which is, all claims to power should be rationally legitimated by the people that that power is held over. Hmm. Now, Noam Chomsky and I may disagree hmm. with what, what might constitute rational legitimation, but I agree with the principle. Yeah. So for the majority of this show, I would really like to give you the floor to challenge me on my advocation of free market capitalism. But before we do that, I just want to get the Marxist thing right. I want to go through a few Marxist doctrines and ask... Can we get capitalism defined as well? We will. Okay. Uh, I want to... I, we, we will do that before we go on to the yeah, second sure. section of the show. Uh, I just want to find out whether you agree with these Marxist doctrines or not. Okay. The first one is quite important because it's polylogism. And if we accept Marx, that Marx basically believed that um, one's account of the world is one's logic, one's very reason is going to be conditioned by one's class. And this creates a problem for us because we can't even have a discussion if there's more than one type of logic. It's only if we accept that um, we can appeal to logic, reason and evidence that we can even make an agreement. If you agree that we have different logics, then the conversation falls down in the first hurdle. <laughs> well, then maybe we have to pick ourselves up for the rest of the podcast because <laughs> um, my my research centers around the variants of logic that uh, I, I, I believe insist in, um, in our creation of them as social constructs. So, for example, capital is a work of logic. And I think one of the things that the the book capital in its three volumes that we have um one of the things that it does is it it does two things primarily just structurally one is it establishes what i think marx thinks as the kind of general logic of capital not capitalism but of capital let's say right and then under that larger umbrella there are all these other logics the logic of the market the logic of the commodity the logic of the value of labor the logic of the labor form, the logic of all of these various different things. And so I'm okay and I'm comfortable with understanding the, the if you want to call it a paralogism, um, but let's just call it maybe the variegating expressions of logic. Now, does that mean that I eschew the formal laws of logic, you know, the law of identity and things like that? Well, actually, in a way I do. Um, I actually think the law of identity is itself a construct. I prefer to start from a position of difference rather than identity. I think identity is something is created rather as the starting point. Um, so we individuate individual or singular instantiations. So you start from a principle of difference rather than a principle of individuality. So the typical way that kind of Western thinking, Anglo-Saxon thinking, let's say, or Anglo-American thinking and philosophy wants to try to say that we start with the law of identity. A is equal to A, right? You have individual things and then I am me and you, Anthony, are you and you, Tom, are you and we are distinguished by the fact that I have my individual essence first, and then we make a distinction based on what I am not, right? And what you are not, 
and what everything else around us is not. Well, okay. the, the philosopher Gilles Deleuze comes along and turns that on its head. And he says, following from the work of this French theorist by the name of Gilbert Simondon, and the idea is, is that actually what you have first is difference. You have this swirling pool of undifferentiated and unbounded, what we could call power or potency, right? And in that undifferentiated swirl of potency, connections are made. And when those connections are made, then individual objects emerge as individuated. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a reversal. Now, that doesn't mean that, and I think it's kind of abstract and kind of confusing, but maybe if we just hold that kind of floating around our heads for a minute, it might make more sense. Um, but I don't think that that means that we're not going to be able to discuss because um, even though I would argue that that I do I do support this idea of there being variants of logics, that doesn't mean that I, I can't work from within a framework of trying to be as clear and articulate as possible from within a from within a different sort of regime of thought, so to speak. So, okay. so yeah, so if that makes sense. Right, okay. And uh, just to state my position, I think that appeals to reason and evidence are our best bet at getting at the truth. Um, I like the existential philosophers as well, but um, I think when it came to those uh, Marxist philosophers, particularly the Fra at the Frankfurt School, um, they one of the problems was their lack of appeal to uh, evidence. They constructed their theories of society um, in their heads and then interpreted society in line with those theories, found evidence. I'm going to try and do the, do. that's my, my right. view. Right, I'm right, going right. to try and flow in the, the other direction. I'm going to try and go to the world and look at the world and uh, draw my inferences from that but we don't need we could have another discussion on the history of uh, european philosophy yeah i think time. that will have to wait yeah. for another time yeah. okay labor theory of value yeah is the value of something uh, how much work has gone into it or is the value of something relative to what demand how in demand it is well do you agree with the labor theory of value? Yeah, so I think, again, I think it's important to look historically at the development of the labor theory of value. You know, it originates really with Smith and Ricardo. And so when Marx comes along, he's expanding on both Smith and Ricardo's conceptions of the labor theory. So Adam Smith, the great sort of uh, figurehead of, of liberal economics, right, or of, of classical economics, sure. um, he ascribed to a notion of labor theory of value that was based on quantity. It had to do with skill and hardship, and that was how you determined the deviation of value from uh, from commodity to commodity, right? The problem with Smith for Ricardo and Marx was that Smith thought that value was demanded by the commodity itself. So, um, and I don't want to confuse price and value here, but just mm -hmm. for the sake of illustration, let's say you have a chair. And for some reason, whenever I give illustrations, I always go to like fucking chairs and vegetables. Okay. So I'm gonna be very, I'm gonna be very primitive in my illustrations here, um, rather than like infotech or something like that. But let's say you got a chair. For for Smith, the value of the chair was intrinsic to the chair, and therefore the amount of labor to be expended in order to meet the value of that chair was externally mm -hmm. determined by the value that was intrinsic in the chair, right? Ricardo and Marx right. come along and they, again, they, sw they switch it, they reverse it, and they say, no, uh, value is determined by the expenditure of labor. Well, actually, Ricardo right. thinks that it's, um, 
uh, labor as such. So he's much more natural. He thinks that humans just have a natural capacity to labor or to act or to transform the material environment, we might say. Um, and so it's much more abstract. He naturalizes labor, whereas Marx comes along and he wants to denaturalize it. And it has to do with the expenditure of labor. So it's a social action or it's an enactment, right? It's something that you do rather than something that you have. And um, and I think that that's important to understand. We need to understand where Marx was coming from when he okay. was developing it. Now, with that said, yes, I do think that there is something crucial to understand in what Marx was getting at with the labor theory of value, which is that value is created as a social relation, as humans imbue their own meaning and value through their expenditure of, of labor. Let's just say through our activity. The more that I think about something, the more that I uh, put time into something, then the more value that something is going to accumulate. But the problem is I think there are limits to that. And this is why I think that you get the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard who comes along and he says, oh, this is what Marx didn't understand. He didn't understand sign value. And that's what I think we have to use as an addendum. So for me, actually my research right now uh, I'm developing what's called like a prolegomena to any future political economy is about I'm trying to work on the theories of value that are a convergence of marginalist subjective theories of value, labor theories of value, and sign value. And ultimately, okay. ultimately, I think what's most important is what we might call symbolic value or sign value. So I like to use this example. You're from Edinburgh, right, Anthony? I'm from Glasgow. Oh, you're actually Glasgow. both from Glasgow, but I live in Edinburgh. I can hear your accent, Tom. You're definitely from Glasgow. I lived in Glasgow for a couple of years. So Anthony, you've got you've got a little bit more of a slower cadence. You don't have that kind of like Glaswegians talk really fast sometimes. But um, so if I were to show you, I don't know what part of town you're from, so I don't want to start a controversy here. But if I were to show you a shamrock, uh, right. that would that would elicit certain feelings out of you. There'd be a certain value. If I were to show you um, a blue shirt uh, next to a green shirt, there are certain values that those signs elicit, right? And what I would yeah. argue is, is that what we need to, to, to add as a supplement to the labor theory of value is how is it that sign value also modifies the, the, um, the value that is imbued into commodities themselves, while at the same time recognizing that sure, there is a sense of subjectivity. You're gonna buy a Celtic jersey or a Ranger jersey because it means something to you, and so you find it subjectively valuable, or social, or socially we find them subjectively valuable. But my question is, why do we find them valuable? How do we find them valuable? And in what sense or under what conditions is that value constructed? And I think that the labor theory of value points us in the right direction, it opens up the right conditions, but that it's it's simple it's notions of yeah, because it's simple notions of temporality are based on a on a sort of limited understanding of how we understand time and intensity and variation and acceleration and speed and depth and uh, compounding interest, if you will, to use a metaphor. And so I think that's why sign value becomes important. But nevertheless, I do think that there is a way to construct a materialist notion inspired by Marx through the labor theory of value, but that also incorporates both subjective and sign value. So it's it's a bit okay, more complex. You you said that basically Marx Marx's view wasn't the full view. Uh, same with Smith. From my perspective, um, you know, at that time, economics economists were still having trouble understanding why a diamond was more, or a pearl, let's say, was more valuable than water because water, you know, we need to live, whereas a pearl, you don't need for anything, and. 
Now, why would a diver go to all of the effort to go down to the bottom of the ocean to get a pearl? Um, and this was not explained by any of the theories of value at the time. But I think Carl uh, Menger came along and he um, was able to formulate a theory of value, which I don't think anyone previously did, which is the one that I subscribe to uh, until until I'm otherwise corrected. Um, I, I Which I'm, is what? If, if, what, what? What exactly? How would you describe the way that you right, do? See, now, now, uh, now you're asking me because I never really have uh, That's okay. prepared to, to put it forward. I'm trying to even remember the name of the theory of value. That's okay. Um, the subjective theory of value, which is basically it advances the idea that the value of a good is not determined by any inherent properties of the good at all. Sure. Or by the neighbor. Or, or sorry, or by the labor necessary to produce the goods. Uh, the value is just determined by the importance that an acting individual places on the goods. So there's right. no inherent value. Now, this is interesting because it's split within libertarianism because the objectivists, the Randians, right. say that all value is, obje that value is objective right. and that where Karl Menger is wrong is he's conflating somehow price with value. Right, right. But no, you know, a bottle of water is, you, 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 you'd sell yourself into slavery for a bottle of water if you were in the desert. But here living in Glasgow, it falls out of the sky and it comes out the taps. So, so the value of it is little to me. Now, you, I think when you were talking about the more, say, you, you pointed out a fundamental truth, which is if you're working on something, an essay, a, a book, a, a work of art, um, a, a, a map of the world, a worldview. The more thought you put into it, the more effort, the more energy you put into it, the better it gets. Sometimes it makes it worse. You could ruin something by over. Yeah, look at Metallica. What was it? What was it? I don't know, Guns and Roses, the album that they it took them like fucking twenty years. What was it? Chinese destruction or whatever. Yeah, it, it's it's fucking, yeah, no, whatever. Just, uh, there's yeah. absolutely no need to mention Guns and Roses <laughs> in this, this show. Right. Come on, man. That's you're on your first warning. Right. Well, well, here's well, here's the thing. I agree with that. I I noticed that over. But this is the difference. This is a different kind of value. Um. You know, this is not price value necessarily. This is maybe a sentimental value or aesthetic value or, or something, but it certainly does not correlate to price value. It's like it's not necessary necessary that the more effort we put into this podcast, the the more people are going to value watching it. In fact, after a while, they might. So so anyway, but we don't we don't necessarily need to debate that yet. I'm just going to take. Okay. Uh, I'm going to miss a couple of them because I really want to give you the floor. Um, but dialect, first though, this is another weird one, dialectical materialism. Yeah. Marx held that basically the material forces of production themselves define social relations. Right. Uh, and he said, the hand mill produces feudalism, the steam mill produces capitalism, which uh, in my view is like a deepity. Do you know what that is? You know, Dan Daniel Dennett created the words, you know, something that sounds really deep and profound, but actually says nothing. <laughs> hey, now, that's, what, think, that's what we philosophers do, okay? Is we create words yeah. that sound deep, but a lot of times they're vacuous. <laughs> right. I think this is the thing because I don't agree with Marx. The individual yeah. forces, are, sorry, the, the, uh, because industrial forces don't act. Men act. Right. The industrial forces are a product of man's mind. Man's mind gives rise to the material forces of production. They do not. 
give rise to man. So do you, do you have a view on dialectical materialism? Um, and how does it contradict my own? Yeah, well, I think actually what you said, I wouldn't disagree with. Um, and I don't think Marx would disagree with it either. And now here, I, I want to make sure too, I don't want to be somebody that uh, is just going to sit here and try to defend Marx because I don't want to psychoanalyze him. And I believe in... You've already deviated from him. So that's... Yeah, I know. And I, I believe in the death of the author uh, wholeheartedly. So uh, Marx is dead. So when I say Marx thought, I'm not Except necessarily... it's my ideas, because <laughs> if it's my ideas, I won't credit. If it's anyone else's idea... Okay. Um, and so, so I'm not, I'm not so concerned with that. But so when I say that I think Marx thought, I, I just mean like Marx's literature. I think as I interpret it or as I, as, as I'm reading it. Um, so I would say that the sort of Marxian position is better understood as understanding both that yeah, human beings create the machines that they work on. But Marx has a theory of that. It's called objectified labor, right? Um, fixed capital is just a sort of new moment or a new mode of previous objectified labor. But so this is why I think Sartre comes along and Sartre actually corrects the Engels reading. Engels wanted to find the dialectic in nature. So Engels actually thought that the dialectic itself was a law of nature, that if you were to like fucking study science and shit, that it would actually move according to the laws of the dialectic. I don't think that Marx thought that. And a matter of fact, in the 18th Brumaire, he actually says that man creates history um, to precisely the exact extent, uh, the exact extent that history makes man, and his point is, is that it's a co-constituting relationship. So we make a chair, insofar as the same sense that the system of chairs or the relations of chairs also then constitute us, and they change us in our relations. And so, in that sense, I think we absolutely, I am absolutely, um, I'm, I, I'm interested in the idea of the dialectic, but simul simultaneously, because I have done a lot of work on post-structuralism, I also recognizing the limits of the dialectic, because the dialectic oftentimes seems to work within certain conditions, and it doesn't allow for complexity and that idea that I was talking about earlier with difference that I think we need to, to use to supplement certain more um, linear notions of the dialectic, right? And the, the, the kind of, uh, let's say the 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 boring introductory textbook understanding of the dialectic is you have a thesis, then you have an antithesis, and then you have a synthesis, right? Marx actually never said that. Uh, I'm sorry, Hegel, Hegel never actually Hegel never actually said that. Um, he never actually used that idea. I believe it was Fichte that used it in his readings of Hegel, but you can correct me on that. Anyone can Google that if they want. But Hegel never actually used that. But the idea is is that there's struggle, right? The idea is that there's an agonism between competing forces. And so in that sense, absolutely, I, I have no problem with talking about dialectics. And as a matter of fact, my PhD research mm -hmm. is basically or was basically on um, a text by Jean-Paul Sartre called Critique of Dialectical Reason, where he's actually criticizing structural Marxism in the work of Louis Althusser and Engels Marxism, which is this idea of a dialectics of nature for what he would call and what sometimes people call like an existentialist Marxism. And it would take into consideration both your criticism, and mm -hmm. at the same time, it would allow for the idea of Marx's notion that we create and then we sort of like objectify ourselves into the material world. So it's both and, and they're working at the same time. They're both acting on each other all the time at the same time, perpetually forever. Okay, well, uh, you mentioned struggle and, and the Marxian view that is, of course, class struggle. Yeah. Now, the, the classical Marxists believe that Socialism was inevitable because uh, it was the superior system. It was the next step in the in the dialectical process. So there was not really that much need to debate 
the relative merits of socialism because it was going to happen. The analytical Marxists, uh, I, I think, said that that's not necessarily the case. Right. And um, when you say so, but but my problem with this idea of struggle, which yeah, I mean, it exists in nature. You can see evolutionary struggle. You can. Uh, see competition within the hierarchy of a corporation where people are competing to get the next job. My real problem with this Marxist view of the world, and even more so its application to gender relations um, and uh, race relations and just about, just about every aspect of life, the cultural um, application of those views, is that it seems to completely preclude the idea of um, mutually beneficial exchange. Now, uh, Tam's got a pen and I've got a pen, mm-hmm. and in the in the libertarian view, is if we swap pens, well, I actually took Tam's yeah, exactly. pen there. There was, there was no exchange. That's right. He got there. That was an equal equal exchange. Sure. If if I if I prefer I clearly prefer his pen to my pen well because I stole it but if if we if if we if we swapped voluntarily inherent in that is the notion that we're each trying to substitute a state of affairs which we prefer to our current state of affairs and uh, we can do that for mutual benefit in other words the employ of a individual can be. And their benefit and uh, voluntary. Uh, the, the employer, this is another thing that I disagree with Marx on, the theory of surplus value, the idea that the capitalist is just skimming something off the top, Ten, uh, usually about 8 to 12% profits are. He's just skimming that off the top, he's not providing any value. Well, first of all, if that was true, the most successful businesses would be the ones that didn't have capitalists because they'd be able to charge 8 to 12% less for their products. So obviously he's doing something of value, otherwise he wouldn't be able to outcompete his opponents. Secondly, he gets paid last, everyone else gets paid first, and he only gets paid if the product makes a profit. So he's taking on the risk. And uh, what's more is in that time which expends, there is a prof there's um interest value to that money. So if he just lent it out to someone instead of invest of investing it, he would have made some money for that. So his workers are reimbursing him for not, um, for not, uh, for not just lending it out to someone else. Then, of course, I mean, instead of investing in a business, I don't know, you could go on a cruise or buy a yacht or something like that. He's choosing rather no, than, that's what I do with my yeah, rather than to enjoy immediate consumption, he's uh, deferring consumption to uh, and risking uh, re- risking loss. So we, we, I don't see that as an exploitative relationship. Um, sure. Uh, what's more, it doesn't. Marx does not take into account. There's a Marxist reductionism, which is Marx sees people in their capacity as workers, employers, aristocrats, and so forth, and in, in, in terms of their class. Well, does, um, does he see them that way, or does he say that they are that way under specific conditions, namely the conditions of industrial capitalism? And I think we need to make that distinction, because he ultimately okay. sees people in their species being, right? Okay. That's what he ultimately okay. wants. He says that actually the reason that the capitalist mode of production is exploitative is because it doesn't allow people to truly flourish in their species being. 
Right, okay. So there's a difference. I, I, needed to, I needed to take a deep breath for that because um, it's so counter to all of the evidence that we have at our disposal, which is to say that uh, mar uh, countries that have market economies have allowed for far more flourishing than societies that don't have them. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that uh, at, say, 1870 the average work week was 57 hours and it's reduced between by about 15 or more since then it means people have more time to pursue leisure uh okay uh and work you sell your but i guess Marx yeah i mean we're we're kind of yeah. we're kind of we're kind of getting off because yeah, yeah, yeah. we are getting off topic yeah well, cause, cause, I just really, want to no, no, that's okay one yeah, single point i just yeah, want to finish I, one single point okay yeah go ahead which is, I, I just wanted to say that he does see people within, you say, as well, that Marx, I just don't think that Marx took into account, and this is Mises' main argument against Marx, that people are not just producers, they're also consumers. Mm -hmm. And all of these, uh, the, the ideas that Marx has about people in their capacity or as producers is reductionist because it does not, allow for a full analysis of what capitalism does for individuals given that they have more capacity than just being a producer sure as consumers capitalism furnishes people with a large selection of choices to make with their disposable income which means that they can flourish because they can choose what they prefer out of an extraordinary range of possibilities, what to do with their time, what to do with their money, and so forth. Um, so, so you can look. So we can go back. We can go back and discuss whether the capitalist workplace is indeed dehumanizing, which I think is uh, Marx's point, and I'm more than willing to discuss that. But I think the main uh, shortcoming in Marx is he's only looking at people and their capacity as either a uh, uh, an owner or a or a worker rather than an owner and a consumer and a worker and a consumer sure yeah i mean there's so much there that you said right that i mean we could literally talk just about that little paragraph sure. that you just gave for fucking weeks sure. for, literally for years i mean that's what people have done so just real quickly because i know you want to move on to a couple different points no, no, i'll just take say, as long as you want okay well, uh, for, yeah 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 <laughs> uh well first of all um your notion, your little experiment that you did with Tom, where you exchanged a pen, is really interesting. Um, have you read the book by David Graeber called Five Thousand Years: The First Five Thousand Years Debt, The First Five Thousand Years? Um, so David no, Graeber's. No, I've read Straw Dogs. Okay, yeah. Uh, David Graeber's an anthropologist, and he basically does this painstaking research into the entirety of of let's call it's primitive like the or, gift economy and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And he looks at um, all of these various different notions, and he says, "Listen, there has never, ever, ever." been an entire a civilization, a market system, or a system of exchange, a system of reciprocity that has ever been based on barter. So one of the key tenets of praxeology, right, of Mises' system that Murray Rothbard popularized was that uh, the Robinson Crusoe notion of exchange and barter is something that uh, is the kind of ideal to live towards and that essentially the free market is a system of barter, right? There has never been a culture ever and then david graber wants to say why is that and it's because of this so you just did a pen can I, can I just okay. quickly can I, I don't know he actually said i don't know how he can demonstrate that there never was i think what he said was there's no evidence as such okay okay yeah 
Yeah. I think I think in science, though, when we're talking in, in any sort of science, when we say there there isn't, it doesn't mean that there's not the logical possibility of it. Yeah. Um, it just okay. means that there has not been such. So thank you. That's actually a good nuance to make. So there has not ever been such, um, which means then that that we're kind of we're running into some sort of limit or some sort of idea that we need to consider, right? Why hasn't there been such? And what he demonstrates is that um, is that really what you have is a system of exchange of debt and sign power. And so, for example, your exchange with Tom just there with the pen or my exchange with a friend, I got a banana and my friend at school has an apple and I don't like bananas. And I'm like, hey, dude, you want to want to switch that for me? Here's the question. Yeah, I get an apple because I wanted an apple. And so that sort of benefits me and my utility. And yeah, he or she gets a banana and that might benefit his or him or her because they're like, ah, I like bananas. My mom doesn't ever give me fucking bananas. The problem is this. Is there a symmetrical relation of power under which that exchange takes place or not? And the idea is, is that maybe there's not. Maybe I did it because I know that that person is more weak-minded than me. And so there's obviously, there's a debt. There's an excess that I'm playing at to get what I want. Or simultaneously, maybe that person is the bully and I'm trying to give them the apple or the banana so that I can earn favor from them. And so here's the problem with the barter system, though, that we need to understand is it doesn't understand, I think, in a in a robust manner, the development of anthropology through religious signs and through cultural signs and symbolic capital. And we need to incorporate we, that. Right. We can we can we don't I think that we can put the. Um, anthropological angle aside if we just you know make it a less charitable example which is some guy's broke ass poor and uh, needs to put food on the table for his family and some capitalist comes along and offers him a job and there's no minimum wage so he offers him three dollars an hour you know that's basically the extremis of your and he has to accept that wage because there's an imbalance of power let's get at the fundamental point which is about um, at the about the imbalance of power because that is the fundamental question that you're raising. Yeah. I'm cool with that. Right, first of all, I think that saying that there's never been a society where this existed, whether true or not, is completely fundamentally irrelevant. I mean, someone could say there was never a society without slavery, and we could say, or uh, you know, if that were, were true, um, well, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work towards the abolition of slavery. There's also an anthropological and tribes and things like that, you do not have the, there's, the conditions are so different. First of all, there isn't scarcity as we would understand it in the fact right. that there's haves and haves not. Secondly, um, people live a subsistence life. They can't really produce very much more than they consume in their lifetime. So well, that's the not idea, true. In hunter-gatherer so hunter well, societies, they did live above means of subsistence quite a bit. Uh, Jared Diamond has done some wonderful research okay. on this as an anthropologist. It was actually the- Not to the same extent as post-agriculture. Of course, of course. So yeah. the point is only, only once we invent agriculture, is there any point in owning a slave? Because before that, you know, you your slave can't produce much more than they consume, not much, right? So right. it's only at that point where these points that we're discussing become relevant. Now, the, mo the, now the moment they invent agriculture, you get slavery because someone can produce more than they can consume. You get wage labor, you get um, taxes, all of, this, all of this stuff, right? Now, just because they didn't 
say, wow, we can produce more than we can consume. Let's all get together and form a voluntary society along anarcho-capitalist grounds where all uh, relations are equal and voluntary. Of course they didn't do that. Why would they? There was always some people who would benefit from the use of force and violence sure. to either enslave somebody else, to, uh, to tax them, to uh, take more than they gain. There's always someone who's going to benefit from that. Sure. Which is why I don't think the historical angle is the most pertinent. I think a better way to hit at it would be like, let's take the, let's just take an imbalance of power, right? Mm -hmm. I want to, someone's down on their luck. They can't do any better. And I'm going to provide them with a job, okay? There's so much that I could say about why I don't think this is exploitative. Right. First of all, it's not my fault that they're down on their luck. Second of all, they're not actually um, uh, being without free will that has never ever made any choices in their life. Right. right. So provided they weren't um, locked in a basement by their abusive uh, abuser for their whole life and not allowed to attain skills, not afforded the ability to um, cultivate themselves, they're not a hapless victim. Okay, but wait, real quick, can you, can you right? clarify that a little bit more? So, and I know you probably wouldn't say it so forcefully, but just, um, just to, to try to make it as rhetorically juicy as possible. Okay. Are you saying, are you saying it's their fault that they're in the position no, that they're in? No, what I'm saying, saying it's not his fault. No, I'm saying, first yeah. of all, it's not the, it's not the capitalist's fault that they're in that position. And secondly, I didn't even bring fault into it. The no, okay. I don't. I don't mean fault like to blame from on high. But are you saying no, that they? I'm it is. Saying, it is their. I'm it is a product of their choices. Is what I mean. It's to a degree a product of okay. their choices. To a degree a product of their upbringing. To a degree they're a product of their genetics and so forth. But people do have choices. Second, uh, next of all, right? Did they go to eleven to thirteen years of mandatory education? Right. Um, from the state in which they didn't learn any skill. I mean, first of all, in the States, the only things that you need to do to avoid poverty is um, graduate from high school, get a job, and don't have a child before you're married, right? You're gonna, <laughs> right. You're, statistically, you're, statistically, you're gonna avoid. So, so the, the, the schools are terrible. The schools are instituted by the state. The 11 to 13 years is long enough for anyone to become a concert pianist. And yet people come out of that system and can't get a minimum wage job. So it's not the capitalists that have let the average individual down. It's the mandatory public education system. There's no competition within the education system. They won't even allow school vouchers so that parents can choose their own schools and schools. So there's no trial and error. Your iPhone gets better every year. Every year they bring out a better phone. That would happen in the education system because people value the education of their kids. But that's not been allowed to happen for like over, for like over 100 years. So well, actually, that's not true. In the States, we have a private education system that you guys don't, you're not familiar with in Scotland. As a matter of fact, I went to private school 
from uh, but kindergarten. But that runs alongside the state education system. No, it's highly no, no. regulated. Can I, can I just no, quickly clarify no. something here, Justin? Do you yeah. accept the notion of free will in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that's again, so much was being said that uh, I wish yeah. I was taking down notes, but I'm trying to hold this okay, stupid sure. fucking sure. microphone um, okay, as no. to what to answer. Sure, um, no, I completely reject the notion of free will. I right. believe that we are free within conditions that are not of our own choosing. So what that means is, is simply stated is that uh, you didn't select the brain that you have. You didn't select the country in which you were born. You didn't select your parents or your genetic predispositions. And also for the first, let's say, three to five years of your life, you didn't really get to choose too much about um, the meals that you would eat, your dietary restrictions, and all of those things then have But that's a universal, surely. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody. Okay. That's, that's the same. Everybody has that same thing. Nobody, not just you, Antony, like every human. That's We're all conditioned by situations that are not of our own condition. Um, and then at the same time, and I think this is most properly basic, we need to think about language. Language to me is the big confounding of freedom because for you to speak, you're essentially using words that have been socially constructed by other humans and that have meanings within these kind of various overlapping networks of meaning and signs and systems of exchange that preclude your ability to freely express yourself out with those conditions. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't choose the signs and systems and symbols and words and things like that to communicate a certain type of sense, but nevertheless, you're only free within certain conditions. The libertarian notion of freedom, now it depends on how, how far you take this, is that there cannot be coercion, right? In, mm -hmm. your, uh, in your activity if we want to preserve freedom. And so anything that that coerces or that compels activity or thought or feeling is necessarily corrosive to freedom. And I actually think that um, that's actually setting up the debate unfairly for the libertarian because I think that you can't escape your material embeddedness. So uh, a perfect example right now is that you're sitting next to Tom and um, you might say, uh, with your left arm, you want to touch the very back of Tom's right shoulder. And I would say, you know, try it. And so you might think that you want to do that, but you're materially constrained. One, by your body. Two, by the, the, the sort of angle at which your body is reaching. Three, you'd be constrained because I put the thought into your mind. Four, you'd be doing it just simply so that you can kind of make a point to the audience or because you're in a podcast. Four, um, the language and how you interpret my 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 request or my challenge to try to touch the back of right uh, Tom's right shoulder are all constrained by this entire system of of this structural system of material limits. And so what that okay, does? No is one that denies limits. that. No, I'm not going to stand here and say you've got the free will to get up and fly. I mean, right. Austin. I, I, no one denies that you're free to act within within limitations. I would say that. Um, my notion is that a free market society, there's no way that the schools would look anything like what they look like now. But I think, we, right, no, 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 but, but wait, we got to be but, real quick, because if we're going to go to school now, because Tom's, no, 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 Tom's, question, Tom's question was about free will. And so I don't know, I don't, I'm down to talk about like choices in the market, but, but, be, but, but this we, is but, a constraint. This is a constraint on people's freedom because they are coerced into 11 to 13 years of a mandatory education system sure. that doesn't promote human flourishing. So, and then you look at the market, the result, like, uh, sorry, I just think these are really important points because socialists, yeah. Marxists, say 
oh, the, the capitalist workplace is so authoritarian, it's soul-destroying, it's demeaning, it's meaningless. Well, I mean, no wonder. You've just conditioned people to do what they're told when they're told for 11 to 13 years, and then you expect them to go out and create utopian workplaces. It's not going to happen, sure. but it would be more likely to happen, and there's nothing in... There's nothing in the free market system which is against workers owning the workplaces. They're more than welcome to go to the bank and get a loan and buy over the workplace. Yeah. And if they can run it better than the capitalists, so much the better for them. But it's not the free market uh, which is originating the conditions we see. But whenever anyone criticizes the system that we have, they usually level their criticism at the free market rather than at the gestalt of state and uh, market influences. Right. You think so? They don't draw back to the cause. They you don't, don't think so? Do, but what makes, no. what makes you say that? Because in my experience, um, that's clearly, I, I don't disagree with what you said about the problems of the school system sort of manufacturing yeah. some bullshit, top-down, authoritarian notion that actually then constructs right. bodies. Embedded in right. the human psyche. Right. Right. See, this is, workplaces. right. So two, two things, if I can, just real quick, real quick. Sure. Um, remind, remind me of my second thing, Tom, if you can write it down for me, uh, to talk about Foucault and disciplining of bodies. I'm going to talk about that okay. in a second. But here's the first thing. I think more than anything, I think your, I don't want to say hostility in a sense, like you obviously don't want to punch me in the face, but your ideological hostility towards the position that I am supposed to be defending or expressing okay. is actually at odds, I think, with really the impetus of my end goal. I really think we both have the same end goal. Yeah, exactly. We really, no, I, I realize yeah. that, which is why I want, you, want to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, this is why I think it's so great. I mean, I, I actually have more in common with like, an ANCAP uh, hardcore libertarian who wants the destruction of hierarchies and the stimulation of freedom. Well, you want the well, weathering I'm, away of the state. Okay. Well, we'll go and get there in a second. We can get there in a second because I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm not against hierarchy. Terminology. <laughs> I, I, I want to qualify this. I'm not against hierarchy. Well, no, no. Uh, I, okay, uh, me either in terms of pragmatic hierarchy or like a functional, I'm for, I'm for it. Like we can have the we can have both business models uh, try. And if the non-hierarchical ones are successful, great. And if the hierarchical ones are successful, then they're providing value. Okay. But I'm just saying that the school system preconditions people for um, dysfunctional yeah. hierarchies. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, no, okay, yeah, yeah, finish your point. I agree on that. And so I think what's so important to understand is the ultimate crux of our, our disagreement would be on whether or not individual freedom and individuals as kind of like atomic atomistic parts um, is the foundation upon which we ought to start to build systems of exchange that are going to lead to human flourishing. Okay, and then good. two, I'm glad that you clarified that. Yeah, and then two, we need to think about what does that mean with regards to the market? What is the market? Where is the market? Is the market a regulating principle? It is, is it an idea? Is it a location? Is it just simply a system of exchange? So for example, if I go to my neighbor and I buy his bicycle, a la like Craigslist or Gumtree or something like that, am I enacting the market logic or am I bringing myself onto the market? Is that the market? So I think we need to understand that. And I'm not saying we have the answers, but let's kind of think about what is the market or how do we, how do we live the market, so to speak. Um, but ultimately, I think the end goal then would be is from, from the sort of 
critical perspective, my perspective, critical of capitalism then is then is capitalism as an historical phenomenon that has developed a certain set of social relations. Is that conducive to those ends that the libertarian itself wants? And that's what I think is interesting because I actually ultimately think that capitalism itself is corrosive of the goals of the libertarian because even though the libertarian wants that freedom, I think that they don't realize what they're doing is they're embodying certain control mechanisms that themselves need to be eradicated. So if I can sure. real quick, if I can say the, sure. the capitalist movement, the liberal capitalist um, revolution or reformation, transformation of, uh, of feudalism kind of flattened. And I know I, I don't want to say uh, that you're opposed to hierarchy altogether, but let's say um, it flattened like a, a totalitarian or oppressive set of social yeah, relations, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I that, agree. And then, so let's just say, and I'm moving my hands down. I don't know if the audience is all watching, but like, let's say the gap between uh, power relations was here. And so there was radical exploitation of monarchs and feudal lords and merchant capital and shit like that. And then of course, peasants and plebs and shit like that are down here, right? And so the, the, the capitalist revolution kind of closes the gap. Right. And when it does mm -hmm. that is it does help raise living standards across the world. Absolutely. And, and no one would deny that. Um, I, I'm a big fan of economic history and Robert Allen has written a lot on this. No one would deny that. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I, and I don't think anyone would deny that. Right. Um, even Marx, if you read the first page or two. No, no, no. Of, Marx said yeah. that capitalism was better than feudalism. Absolutely. No question. So then the question Marx is. Marx didn't write about socialism very much. He just critiqued capitalism. Well, he, and there's a reason for that. Uh, there's, a, there's a big, huge historical reason, and part of it has to do with his death. Um, but we can talk about that too. Um, but I would argue then is that that flattening of that hierarchy needs to go one step further. And I think you do think you think that too, because you would argue- I do, but, but yeah. I, I, I the have question the is how do we get there? How, how do we yeah. get there from you? Yeah. Did you but no, but you, I think that's what we need to not, we need to not brush over that point, because I think that's so sure. important for us to build that common ground. We both want that point at which exchange and reciprocity in human communities conditions and creates human flourishing. And that's so important for us to understand that we do have that same goal. So that's important. Now, if I can talk about Foucault real quick, yeah. the discipline of bodies, this is something where Marx wasn't able to uh, to theorize because he just, this wasn't his mindset. This wasn't his, his impetus. Um, but um, for Marx, he viewed things through like propriety power relations, right? So you have property power or you don't have property power. If you have control over the means of productions, you have the power. If you don't, you don't have the power. A sort of simple binary. Foucault comes along and he introduces a category that I think that I think that that Marxian theorists need to embrace more. And trust me, a lot of them do. So I'm not trying to denigrate because many of them do. My One of my favorite theorists is a guy named Jacques Bidet, who wrote a book called Foucault with Marx, in which he talks about this sort of thing. But it's this idea that we need to introduce something called knowledge power. And knowledge power is what do we mean when we think about systems as they use knowledge and reason and rationality, you're talking about reason earlier, in order to construct and create bodies? And then who has and what has and in what ways does the wielding of this knowledge proliferate throughout society? So who has the knowledge power? Um, for, for Foucault, it, it can be understood in various different ways, but let's take the education system, right? Or let's take the clinic, which is another one of his examples, like psychiatry, right? Or psychology. Yeah, and so they're kind of trying to normalize people based on s systems of norms, based on particular ideas of knowledge. And so what you have then through the education system, um, in, as another example, is this imposition of knowledge power that constructs bodies in a particular way that 
that um, that as you say, you go to 11 or 13 years of public education, that means that by the time you get done with that, you have literally been constructed. You have been yes. transformed. And we understand neuroplasticity, which means that this isn't just like a psychological, like, oh, I had some influences and this is this ethereal, ethereal feeling. Literally, the, the neuronical chemicals in my brain flow a particular way because of the 11 to 13 years of, um, I, 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 brainwashing popped into my head, but it's not brainwashing, but yeah, it is a form of brainwashing. It is conditioning. It is conditioning. Right. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, we can't get away from conditioning. There, there will never be a way to get away well, from conditioning. So, so the question is... The influence of it. Wait, say that one more time. You can reduce the influence of it over your behavior. Can we? Or uh, can we can. just create other ways of conditioning? So you can say... Even so, right? You're, you're going to make... You, look, we can't only... You're... The, the problem with your angle, from my perspective, is we can only deal with humans as they are, right? And right. as they are, you're going to be making decisions out of your limited number of options, and you're going to try and make the decisions which will benefit you or someone you care about or someone or, or something. You're going to try and substitute a more satisfactory state of affairs for a less satisfactory state of affairs. And you are going to do that imperfectly. No question, right. everyone's gonna do that. Now, there is not some people who are not subject to those limitations that, you know, this idea that basically, everyone's kind of broken. So you can uh, basically take from the less broken people and try and even things up. But, you know, that means that those people, you know, they're struggling with whatever conditions that they're struggling with and things like that. And um, when you say you have, you know, people should be forced to provide this or that or the other thing, uh, because some people are conditioned in such a way that's, that's severely disadvantageous. I kind of see it from a different angle, which is if you have a society which uh, maximizes what I mean by freedom, which is voluntary interactions, uh, you will have the natural emergence of institutions that will cultivate people. Why? Because even as an employer, in a completely selfish way, I can make more profit from someone that I can charge 50 bucks, sorry, whose labor is worth 50 bucks an hour than someone whose labor is worth $5 an hour. It's in my own interests, which is why people train their staff. Until you have a whole bunch of labor laws and regulations, and minimum wages, and then every shop has in the window experienced staff wanted. They only want experienced staff because everything that the socialists think will help the disadvantaged ends up going against them because it limits their numbers of options. Now, I can't take a job, I can't, I can't just get in an apartment which is tiny with six other people because you're not allowed to live in that packed condition, get a low rent job, learn the skills, then go to another low rent job, do the same thing until I'm skilled myself and could start my own business. The reason why I love the free market, sorry for going on so long. No, it's okay. Is yeah. A, it's going to afford people the maximum amount of decisions instead of saying, sorry, you can't take that choice. Sorry, you can't take that choice. The other thing is someone hearing on from your side of the political perspective spectrum hearing my views on education go, yeah, well then that's why we need a socialist view of education to cultivate people. My problem with that is, I don't, I'm not saying that's your conception. Yeah, yeah, but some people would say that, yeah. I believe that no one has the information 
on what's the best way to educate people. The great thing about the market is it could be happening in millions of different ways simultaneously and someone will come up with a good idea over here and people will copy that. Someone will come up with a good idea over there and over time, the best ideas will win out Sure. as the best phone or whatever wins out. And I, I don't know if you're a, a, you know, a, more of a Marxist. Market socialist or something. A market like socialist yeah. or you're more like Bakunin who wants a stateless socialist society. Right. But my problem with central planning is apart from obviously thinking it's immoral, but pr pragmatically, <laughs> is I don't think it gives the scope for trial and error. And if okay. someone's central plan is wrong, millions and millions of people are forced to suffer. Sure. Whereas under the free market, uh, bad plans, there is still planning, but bad plans only have a small number of victims and those plans are weeded out, whereas better plans become more widely adopted over time. Because sure. we don't have perfect knowledge, we cannot come to those conclusions uh, a priori. But right. the market system along allows for a constant churning over of the ground and for the best ideas to win out over time and be combined and have sex with each other to create even better ideas. Sorry. I do love the. I love, the I love the idea of having sex because I'm all about uh, the expression of libido in economy. So I love that. Right. Um, yeah. So you, you you take as long well, as you want to respond. No, no, do no. you really love the idea of sex, or have you just been conditioned? Oh, I, I, hey man, my biology says I do it. I do it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking flying ants are flying all over Dublin right now, and uh, apparently they just like fly in the air just so they can have sex real quick. The male dies, the queen goes on to start a new colony. That's his male privilege. <laughs> um, so, oh god, again, again, so much there. I, I think that if we're going to simplify yeah, it, let's, let's just talk about the yeah. idea of central planning, and and let me see. Yeah, let's let's use Occam's razor on its ass. Yeah, uh, let's let's try to just talk about the issue of planning because I think I think. Um, one of the big, obviously, criticisms is regards to, you know, it's called the, uh, the calculation problem in socialism, yeah. right? Um, yes. So let's talk about that. And then you believe, calculation problem. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you believe that, um, that obviously the market creates a sort of bottom up approach by which we can adapt to fluctuating needs and desires and things like that at a way that creates an efficiency or as, uh, as Hayek would call it a rationality. That um, that a centralist system wouldn't be able to do it. And sure. here's the interesting thing: um, I think we need to be careful when we're talking because when you say socialism or Marxists think such, um, I think we're creating an unnecessary conflict of uh, that that leads to maybe straw men. And the reason okay. is, is it, I'm only going by the majority that I've been exposed yeah, to. Yeah, I know. I, under, I understand. Hey, we can only work with our own experiences and what we've knowledge, yeah. and, and that's why that's why I hope that I can create a different picture. I actually had a, sure. an interesting discussion online with one of your buddies. I think I can't remember the dude's name. He's got dark hair. He was on the podcast, and he has like a microphone set up with like a cover on. Oh, Scott. Scott Am. Is that his right. name? Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember the dude's name, but we had a chat a long time okay. ago, and all I wanted to do in our discussion was say that his notion of what socialism is uh, was a bit constraining because there aren't there isn't social well, straight back at you that could work you for your notion of capitalism yeah exactly no no uh, there are varieties of capitalism um, yeah. I don't believe there is such a thing as capitalism right I think that there are capitalism and so and I think I just want to acknowledge that yeah. within the libertarian community there's a lot of people who just call anything that's government intervention and socialism. Oh, Mises, Mises, didn't he call everybody a fucking socialist? 
<laughs> well, including the free including the free yeah, yeah. he would call Milton Friedman a fucking socialist. So, <laughs> well, I'm kind of leaning towards Mises on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I dig I dig Mises as gall for for basically being like you guys are all fucking socialists. Um, but um, but yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And we need to understand, and I think that's why we need to have these types of nuanced discussions where we say, sure, there there is a problem with like the five year plan of fucking Stalinist uh, US uh, USSR um, economic development. Yeah, it it didn't work like they thought. Yeah, I mean, it worked within certain conditions, but what does it mean work? You know, what do we mean when we talk oh, yeah. about productivity? The do we just concentration counts work? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I don't want to. I don't want to just simply um, capitulate to the idea that you know USSR is bad and Western uh, capitalism is good because I think there are ills to share all around. Okay. Um, but but yeah, there is a sense in which it didn't work, and that's why you get certain people today that I'm more interested in that are thinking about. Um, Market socialism, but central planning using uh, uh, the sort of algorithmic potential of computational models. So there is a Marxist theorist economist who I actually think is in Glasgow or Edinburgh. I think he's in Glasgow by the name of Paul Cockshot. A Marxist uh, in Glasgow. I know. I know. <laughs> but um, he's he's well. He's actually selling his capitalists in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we can talk about Singapore. Singapore. I don't know why free marketeers love to talk about Singapore. Singapore is corrupt I mean, as fuck. The PAP yeah, man. Come on. We know. It's <laughs> the, in terms of in terms of uh, civil liberties. Let's not even go there. But, yeah. Uh, well, and, and the fact that it's state run. I mean, the PAP owns all their utilities, their transport sure. things. Um, they own the finance companies that support. I mean, the PAP. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the fucking prime minister is like in the top point one percent. Austin, there's always there's always room for improvement. There is always. I mean, even always. even Hitler had some good ideas. <laughs> he, was, he was a good artist. Come on, you didn't see any of his pictures. Um, but uh, well, that's debatable. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Right. So, so, so you know, no, no. So, you want to use so, so pictures to centrally plan some things yeah. because they're going to have information that human beings don't have. But then well, the computers no, no, no. can only work in the programs. Well, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. So Paul Cockshot actually, and I don't, I don't buy everything that he's working. I on. hate him already. I don't <laughs> buy everything that he's working on already. But he's a computer scientist slash economist, and he is using algorithmic computational models to try to argue that it is possible to mimic the efficiency that uh, certain marketeers would like to argue about through the idea of planning through computation uh, through advanced algorithmic computational models and he actually right. has run he's run simulations that can actually plan economies that are the size of Sweden efficiently now the issue is this is what do we do moving forward because here's what you were talking about earlier with regards to school we want to build a bottom up and i mean we because i think i think all three of us here agree with this we want to build a bottom up notion of how we can meet people's needs that will meet them where they are and simultaneously that will stimulate flourishing i don't think we would disagree with that am i right okay i'm not a hundred percent sure that in all circumstances those would be my highest values but no, not the highest values speaking, yes yeah even even as just a kind of a pragmatic idea to get the ball rolling we're like hey right I, i'm for human flourishing the sure. thing is when you say society should meet people's needs um again i'm like well how, how are we going to do that i i think well, that i just when mean we meet people where they are okay i, I mean bottom okay. up so like if you're in an educational okay. system 
Um, there was a wonderful book written a few years back called Multiple Intelligences. I used to work on educational theory a bit when I was doing my MA. And uh, I can't remember the woman's name, but she's a British scholar. It's called Multiple Intelligences for people out there that are interested in educational theory. And she argues this idea, you know, trying to use the Finnish model of education and the Rudolf Steiner model and the Montessori mm -hmm. model that are much more bottom up rather than top down by saying what you do is you have a classroom of 10 children and each of those 10 children have a different starting point, which means sure. that what they need are all going to vary. And so what you have to do sure. is you have to develop a plan for the classroom that is malleable, but that starts from yeah. where they're at. But while it's also- So you want to do that with the whole society. Well, Turn so, the whole society into a school, maybe, to cultivate individuals. Um, I don't know if I would quite go that far, but I think the logic of meeting people where, where they're at with regards to um, the, the individual differences is something that the free market rationale itself claims to be able to do right so it can it can yeah, just be only if it's a, only if it's a pure free market sure 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 that's the argument right that's the argument sure and mm -hmm. I, and that's neither here nor there for the point that i'm trying to make right now because okay. we can talk about that later but the point is is that there's an there's an impetus there's a logic where you're trying to build from the ground up now central planning is not from the from the ground up it's from the top down the free market does build from the ground up right or, or let's just say even the the pseudo free market of uh, Western mixed economies does try to build from the ground up, right? And that's why that's why someone like yourself would say what we see then is that what works is that ability to actually meet people at that ground level and what they uh, and so we can understand what commodities are needed and what resources need to be manufactured or mined because we can understand what's going on at the ground level. Whereas central planning is like, no, this town gets a thousand shirts. And that town gets a thousand vegetables. And then they're like, wait, we need more than a fucking thousand vegetables. Or we have too much. We don't need a thousand yeah. vegetables. Right. I, sorry, before you go on, I just want to pick up because you've helped me clarify a point that I was trying to make earlier when I was talking sure. about everyone being sort of broken. We've got imperfect knowledge. We're trying to make um, de uh, decisions with our limited knowledge that we think will substitute our superior state of affairs for an inferior one. Right. And you had the argument of, well, maybe that guy just accepted my banana because he was weak-minded. This clarifies the problem, what you've just said for me, because what I was trying to get at is the only alternative to allowing him to make that voluntary exchange, even though he's weak-minded, is having someone come in and say, no, you can't stop that banana. You can't swap that banana. Now, maybe he is weak-minded and he'll go, later on, he'll go, oh, shit, like, I shouldn't have swapped that banana. I'm not going to do that again. And that often happens in the market. You right. buy a crap product and you don't buy it again. And you tell a bunch of people not to buy it. Or alternatively, Tom comes in and goes, man, what the fuck? You, you swapped that like delicious banana for that shitty apple. Like, dude, right. You can, this is the whole point of volunteerism. The whole point of, yes, we can try and intercede and share ideas and try and improve things. But I don't want to have the situation where a bunch of central planners are saying, these people are too feeble-minded. They think they want white bread, but they actually want brown bread because it's better right. for them. I think it's better for them too. Well, but here's the point. I here's the point, Anthony. You're you're making a straw man argument. Well, gonna, okay, because, tell me. because the idea of central planning as you're describing it is more about like an authoritarian centrality rather than an actual trying to work through an economic model of central planning. And let me explain why. Um, what you're talking about is absolutely the way that maybe this, the Soviet economy ran uh, under under a large tenure of its existence, but no one no one really 
on the contemporary sort of left is saying that we need to go back to the five-year plan. Now, maybe there are a couple dudes out there and a couple chicks out there that are doing that. That's fine. I don't really want to defend that position because to me, I don't think that's really interesting. And so, and it's not widely held anymore. Yeah, but exactly. my, my so actually, we can agree sorry. with that. But so we can agree with that. So I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily important to try to hash out what's wrong with an authoritarian okay. or totalitarian notion. Okay, so we agree on that point. You tell so, me what, like I'm for, for a non-authoritarian one, if you guys want to take your computers and get some land, then I'm for, and, and, and try and run <laughs> your society that way, I'm happy. I don't think the government should come in and stop you and force you to sure. pay land tax and things like sure. that because you're forming your own society. And hey, if it works really well, more people will want to be part of that society and more I'm just not for you forcing the computers on anyone. This is my if I if I can if I can accomplish anything in this discussion more than anything else, it's to convince people to pause in their judgments about what they think capitalism is, socialism is, the free market is, what rationality is, what voluntarism is, what freedom means, and to just pause for a second and have a little bit of humility and let us all continue to say, God, what what do we mean when we say central planning? What do we mean when we say socialism? What do we mean when we say capitalism? So so my my to that end, what I would want to do is just encourage people to pause for a second because I know there are probably people chomping at their bit to be like, ah, I want to say this and no, there's that. And, mm -hmm. and I get it. I get it. Um, but let's pause for a second and let's try to think about what are the different variegations or variations on in a non-capitalist or maybe let's not even use the word capitalism, or the various ways that we can create systems of reciprocity and exchange that will benefit human community. Now, what does that mean to benefit human community? Well, because my idea of benefiting human community might be different than yours, just like yours might be sure. different than the Singaporean, which might be different than the Filipino. So then why can't we also have a system where we appreciate difference, where the Filipino in his community, they can figure out what is going to be the best for their needs. And sure. then guess what? It might change in the next generation or even the next week. Yeah. And that's what we need to do. And to that end, I think that there are a lot of people that are working within a sort of loosely understood socialist or Marxian paradigm um, across the spectrum. I don't care how they define themselves as libertarian okay. socialists or anarcho-Marxists yeah. who are using the tools of, of technology now to try to say that we can actually institute some type of planning. And so let me let me just give an example. So Paul Cockshot again is talking about how you can use computational algorithms to be able to keep up with this rate of demand as it shifts, right? And so one of the ways that we can do this is there's another guy named Kevin Kelly who's not a Marxist, he's a technologist, but um, he wrote a book called The Inevitable. He was one of the co-founders of Wired, I think, but Kevin Kelly wrote this book that I think is so instructive for helping us to maybe even just start to think about what types of computational planning could eventually function. And one of the ways we could do this is through wearables. So for example, uh, unfortunately pharmacists, which sucks, one of my roommates is actually a pharmacist here in Dublin. Pharmacists are going to be out of jobs within the next decade. The reason is because, um, or maybe the next 20 years, but in the next generation or so, pharmacists are gonna be out of jobs. Why is it? Because of the advancement of automation. Now, in what sure. way is automation going to actually change it? People, they, they believe, Kevin Kelly believes, and they're moving in this direction, are going to basically have a sort of system where you can get your blood taken, like a little pinprick. You get your blood mm -hmm. taken on any given day. The machine will read what you need based on your entire medical history, based on what it reads from that particular reading, and it will then uh, dispense 
a set of pills or vitamins or whatever that will will benefit you. So awesome. You, bye bye pharmacists. I've so far, unfortunately, yeah, we're all gonna have like a little uh a well, little you know the world problems. needs Dutch diggers too. Yeah, hey, hey, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but they're they're going by the wayside too, man. Automation is coming. We can't fight it. Let's embrace it. But um but the well, I want my ditch dug by you know by <laughs> black guns. Oh Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, you know. That's that. So we'll the, oh shit, it's lying. Yeah, we're, anyway. we're gonna have to we're gonna have to disagree on that one. But um but but no the point is is that um what that's what what those California. yeah what those wearables or what that type of bottom up technology allows us to do is it allows us to kind of figure out what is needed based on an individual perspective which means that if we have wearables that can tell us what we want with regards to uh, commodities or items that are to be exchanged what we need um, we will have an instantaneous potential whereby we can compute or we can compute. Sure. Um, all of those things at a, at a bottom up yes. level. Now that can still be done. It's completely compatible with a free market system. It is, and it's also, and here's what's crazy: it's also compatible with a non-free market system, and that's the issue. But I don't see why it's desirable. This is my problem, right? You're saying the 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 computers can compute what people need. I don't I don't find it desirable for that. I think you know the market does a pretty good job of making sure the baker doesn't produce too many loaves of brown bread versus white bread right it gets roughly right most of the time and you know if you had a you could have a computer to calculate how much white bread and brown bread is is produced i guess i don't think it's going to do better than the than the market interactions but if people want to adopt these systems voluntarily fantastic i don't see why it's desirable to substitute um, the entirety of interactions between voluntary interactions between human beings with a supercomputer. And also, my system does not rely on having benign central planners or benign um, computer programmers. Like people go, oh, well, you know, USSR, just Stalin was a bad dictator. If it had been Trotsky, it would be good. Venezuela, bad dictator, Every, everywhere, everywhere. It was just a bad dictator. If we got a good dictator in, it would be excellent. Well, my system doesn't need any dictator to function. Roughly the correct amount of goods are produced um, well, to meet people's demands. I, I mean, I think there are some assumptions there. First of all, I wouldn't make the argument right. that um, that if we just had a better dictator, then things would have been better. No, but, um, I know you and yeah. but now we're going to have uh, our machine overlords. Yeah, to, 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 exactly. To I know, I know, brother. They're coming, man. Whether we want it or not. Um, right. No, I, I, I think that that when and and if I can if I can be sympathetic here to a lot of my my fellow sort of Marxian yeah. socialist types okay. is that um, I think that we get caught up in the dramas of social conflict so often. So mm -hmm. especially right now, there seems to be a very contracted point of tension with you know the trump and marine le pen and wilders in the netherlands yeah. and, and it wouldn't happen if you had a tiny state with hardly any power well because people, people don't have anything to argue about like that's yeah. again that's that's i think that that's kind of presuming certain things that that i'm not I, really interested you know, in very I, know. <laughs> I know i know um but i think the point is is that we need to be sympathetic to where people are coming from and as much as my libertarian friends in the states who are hardcore second amendment advocates are going to kick and scream because any sort of legislation to prevent um 
the absolute freedom to own a firearm is a is seen as a violation and an encroachment on their vitality sure. as a human. As much as they're going to kick and scream on that, you know, we're going to get other people that are going to kick and scream. And we need to just pause. And and I am totally sympathetic. I actually grew up shooting guns, so I'm actually not opposed to gunner gun ownership at all. I I don't mind it. I think it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, I grew up loving cowboy movies with all the problems that they obviously entail. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, but the point is, is that is that we need to pause and we need to realize that the leftist frustration with capitalism isn't just a bunch of people who want to take your Kenny Loggins albums from you. They don't. I mean, no. I think a lot of people do think that, but I think that comes from, they're working through their shit. You know, they, they have a feeling in here and they're frustrated because they feel like, well, the capitalists, there's inequality, and, and they hear the, the news cycle that is like inequality, 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 and these evil bankers, greedy evil bankers. And what it does is it creates a sort of drama in the social spheres, the, the social sure. sphere yeah. that really prevents us from being able to actually critically analyze things. And so as much I as agree. we can say the socialists, they want like the trot, they, they would have said Trotsky would have done it better if Stalin didn't assassinate him. And, you know, oh, uh, Lenin just kind of corrupted certain ideas from Marx and and while I do think that there's a validity in some of those arguments, there's also uh, there's also some fallaciousness in some of those arguments. And mm -hmm. simultaneously, I, I think that from the criticism of like from my perspective, when we criticize views that are different than ours, we need to recognize that the desire of the libertarian free marketeers isn't just simply that they want to just perpetuate a system of exploitation. They don't see Absolutely it as a system not. of exploitation. You don't see it as a system of exploitation. In fact, we, we, we think that uh, governments being in bed with big business is extraordinarily exploitative and we want to remove their capacity to do oh, that. Yeah, yeah regulatory just, capture is an evil ill of Western development. But, but where we split is when I'm speaking to socialists, they see the problem as the corporations, whereas we see the the the, the problem as the gun, the ability to to even um, to pass those those laws. Now I want to pick up on your gun thing. Just a second. Is the problem the sorry, sorry. Is the problem the corporation? Or is the problem? Is the problem? No, the, problem is, the, game the problem would be the government because a corporation is a government-created, government-assisted, taxpayer-funded entity. Right. Without the government, you don't have a corporation. You, you only have, have a business. big. You only have a big business. Right. Right. And again, yeah. and it, but but my point is, is when a socialist criticizes, are they criticizing yeah. a corporation? Usually they do. Or 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 is that greed or? Well, aren't the corporation and the, and the capitalist system or the capitalist government synonymous, really, to, to most socialists? Yeah. Well, and and I think I mean obviously, Anthony, I read your your uh, your little book oh, that you wrote. You. Um, yeah, you know, it's and it's. I mean, I I, I like what you're doing. Um, and you clearly are critical of neoliberal state uh, state capitalism. And so you actually, and this is where I think we need to pause again. You actually, when a socialist says, "Fuck, man, the corporations they are in bed with the government and they are corrupting," you're going to be like. Yeah, they are. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. So the difference is, is where is from that criticism. How do we answer things? But I think again, yeah. and I and I and I wish I could like communicate this more. I think we need to think on that more. The fact that we both start from okay, there's corruption, there's oppression, there's totalitarianism or authoritarianism that is embedded within the quote unquote Western capitalist logics. Now you would then argue that's not a fault of capitalism. You would argue that's a fault of maybe uh, the insertion of centralized yeah. power into 
the modes of capitalism. Whereas the socialist would argue you can't separate the two. The development... Yeah, and I think that's a nonsense. I've heard that so many times. And you can. You can actually separate the two. You just say, where is the coercion appearing and where isn't there? It's an obfuscation tactic. Why do you think that? You can... You, ju you just... Then you can absolutely separate the two. Is the government... Are you allowed to braid hair without a license? If you're not, it ain't a free market. Does the government sure. set the interest rates? Does the government, is the government allowed to choose what currency you can and cannot trade with? It's just an obfuscation. I've actually written an article on this. They love to come in and say, oh, uh, capitalism, is, capitalism is an inherently status system. No dice. That's just a presumption. There's no reason to think that. Well, no, it's it's not a presumption. It's based on an historical mm -hmm. argument that could be rooted in the the Marxian notion yeah, of you, primitive you accumulation. Can say you can't have a state without slavery. Mm -hmm. Just let them return. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it could be. Um, I don't think it's just a presumption. It's an argument. No, that's cool, Tom. I got you. Um, I think it's an argument. The last guy was called Justin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's an argument. I think that that is based on the notion of uh, of primitive accumulation. Now, whether it's based on the pure Marxian notion, how Marx understood primitive accumulation, or some more kind of pop. Uh, understanding of it uh, is is a second ar a separate argument, but the point is is that recognizing the development of capitalism can't be devoid from its historical emergence out of merchant capitalism. Yes, but right? we are not advocating any kind of system that has existed before, nor nor was Marx. We have a very pure conception. We have a conception of the ideal state, which is obviously right. less fair. And we're not trying to say, oh, we want to go back to something that existed just. Right. Um, after mercantilism. No, we're, we, we've got a clearly defined goal. Now, I just want to circle back to something you said about the guns, because I think it's a perfect example of why the left-right paradigm as it's set up in the mainstream is very damaging. Because yeah. you've got a bunch of people on the left saying, we need more gun control, and those on the right saying, you need less gun control. Now, the libertarian position is like lovely at cutting through this stuff, because you go, well, look, you know what? On a free market society, you could live in a housing association and the housing association would have rules over who could and couldn't own a gun. You could um, not be allowed to own a gun in your workplace. You could not be allowed to bring a gun into a theater. What we've seen is obviously where the shootings have happened. They've all almost, no, they've always happened in gun-free zones like universities and cinemas where they weren't allowed. But the libertarian position is always want to say like, um, say here in Europe, we've got this debate going on in some countries, should we ban the burqa? Uh, the right say yes, the left say no. And it's like, look, dude, if you if you don't want people to wear a, a burqa in your house, you're allowed to do that. If you don't want them to wear it in your restaurant, you should have the right to do that. Then if people think that you're being unreasonable, they can boycott you. So a lot of the time, our position is able to cut through this um you know what you're saying the right have a certain feeling in their body about it and it annoys them that the government wants to regulate the guns and the left feel the same way well yeah yeah well you know you can find you've got the right to form community with people who have similar views and values to you and if you, you want to live in gun-free society i'm sure you'll find somewhere to do that even within a libertarian society Sure. I mean, I, I actually am kind of bored of the left-right yeah. distinction. You know, I, I okay. don't really think it's useful. I think I think it's kind of it damages the way that we sort of interact in um, 
in our things because I have so many friends who are, you know, fucking socialists who are like opposed to abortion and pro gun rights. It's like, well, where the fuck do they fit on the spectrum? And just right, likewise, exactly. you have this, this alt, alt, alt right, so to speak. They're fucking socialists. You know, they're identitarians and they're socialists, right? I mean, literally, right. Richard yeah. Spencer. Yeah, that's an aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so where does it fit? And then you've got the alt right and the alt left and all these kind of categories. And I think they're useful pragmatically sometimes to an extent. But at the same well, time, useful for taxonomy. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But the problem with taxonomy is we have to realize that it's a construct, and a lot of times yeah. we don't think of that, right? But that's only a pen because we've decided to call it a pen. Exactly, but that's how, no, it, would still, that's how okay, it would still, it would still be, be a pen even if we hadn't called it that. That's but, we but the only reason we're calling it a pen is because we've decided yeah. that's what it's called. Right. But right. what do you mean it would still be a pen? How can you even say that it would still be a pen? You're already using... A we're, under the, we're under the forest and the trees here. Right, okay. okay. There's, yeah, I mean, we could talk about epistemology and we could talk about a concept formation in another podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah, that'd be great. We've been going for almost an hour and a half. Okay. Uh, well, there's only one thing we still haven't clearly defined or to the best of our taxonomic ability yeah. defined from your point of view. When you say the problems of capitalism, what do you mean when you say capitalism? Um, Okay, I mean, I think, uh, so what, what do I mean when I talk about capitalism? Capitalism is a, um, it is a particular mode of social relations based on um, a particular type of exchange where producers and consumers are embedded within a system whereby capital investment drives productivity as the primary goal which means that the, the goal of capitalism is for capital to reproduce itself. Now, embedded within that uh, reproduction of itself is a system of how it does that. And I think that the simple uh, equation that Marx made or the formulas that Marx presented of CMC versus MCM um, give us an indication as to how capitalism reproduces capital or reproduces and produces what he calls surplus value or makes profit, right? And it's the simple idea that you take money, you purchase commodities, which is labor and fixed capital, mm -hmm. machines, uh, means of production, fucking supplies, whatever. And then you have to maximize or uh, increase the original investment into something else. And so you have to figure out how to squeeze that out. And so ultimately then the way that capitalism does that is through the extraction of surplus value. But now how do we understand surplus value is is where we kind of run into an issue. And I, I and that's where I actually depart from Marx. And um, I think that that's where we need to understand sign value and subjective theories of value, the sort of marginalist theories of Jevons and Jennings and Walrus. And you were talking about Menger earlier, which is actually an important figure to think about. Yeah, and so, yeah, um, yeah um, and so I think that's really what capitalism is, is it is a system that is driven by uh, productivity for the purpose of um, reproducing capital. And then the Wait. the consequences Sorry, of that lead to the social relations that you get. Okay, so I have a different view, and uh, I guess this will be for people to decide and discuss in the comments. Um, I don't think capitalism has a purpose. I don't think it, it creates a, it, it's embedded in a system. Uh, at least pure capitalism, the kind of thing that is called capitalism today, of course, you know, that's just what we have. When people say capitalism, they mean what we have now, even though it's a mix 
in my case, is a mix between democracy, capitalism, socialism, and monarchy. And yours, uh, mercantilism. Yeah, mercantilism. It's a mix of systems. No, but when I, when I talk about the libertarian ideal of capitalism, it's not a system. It's right. the absence of system. People interact voluntarily. Um, yes, some people might come into the world with more than others, but that is, in our view, best ameliorated by the system by the totality of voluntary exchanges because um, that will lead for the most opportunities for people to um, acquire skills and advance upon whatever circumstances they come into. Whereas you know you could be dedicated, you could be decadent if you were born into a rich uh, into a rich family. It's not necessarily going to be. A, it might be an advance to you. It might not be. Um, I would say that it's not got any purpose. The only thing that is happening is people are constantly trying to substitute a state of affairs which they find less satisfactory for one they find more satisfactory. And they are allowed to pursue that so long as they don't um, initiate force on one another. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a start with the non-aggression principle. I do. Yeah. I do. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. What were you going to say? So yeah, I was going. To, that was a question I was going to pose to both of you, sure. and I'll, I'll I'll start with you. Are you prepared to use state force or government force and coercion in order to bring about your system? Am I? Yeah. Well, I guess um, I don't. I'm ideologically, I would rather no state, but I think that uh, night watchman state is better than. Um, uh, than this kind of state we have. I would also say that in the transition, I might be for certain things that a lot of libertarians aren't for. So for example, I think that agricultural subsidies are an abomination, but say we were to abolish them tomorrow, that might harm a lot of people. So I wouldn't be for the government giving some money to farmers whom they've made dependent on them to train, to train and find a new profession and how it's phased out, I don't know. I don't know all the details. I could think of some ideas, but basically, I would like to phase out government. Basically, okay. so um, I don't know if that's so. You're more. Using. So you're more. Have you read Robert Nozick's work before? Uh, I'm familiar with his work and some of his arguments. I've not read the primary sources. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd really like Anarchy State Utopia. Yeah, um, it's a big one. Yeah, because yeah, uh, he talks a lot about what he calls the distinction between like maybe let's call it like straight up anarch anarcho capitalists and what he calls minarchists, and he's more of a minarchist. Yeah. Yes, and yes, um, and I, I feel like that. yeah, I feel like you're kind of espousing some ideas that would really resonate, uh, or I'm sorry that he's espousing ideas that would really resonate yes. with you. Although yeah. he's not a purist enough for me, I don't like. He's some a socialist. Of, I don't like some of the things. <laughs> he's I don't like some of the things that he said. Um, yeah, but, but that's okay. But that's okay. I mean, I, no, I, I feel the same way about every libertarian theorist. They've all said things I disagree with. Bro, I feel that way about fucking everything, and exactly. I think that again, our disposition in life sometimes we we think that things need to be cut and dry, and. Mm -hmm. Um, my probably my favorite philosopher with regards to this mentality is Gilles Deleuze, who is oftentimes criticized by other philosophers because he basically wrote these monographs on philosophers. He wrote like a book on Spinoza and a book on Foucault mm -hmm. and a book on Bacon, but he basically just kind of uses them for his own purposes. Sure. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I think that no, that's, that's beautiful that's because that's because yeah, yeah and, and exactly because in the advancement of ideas, we're creating new concepts, right? We're creating new. 
to new feelings and new senses. And I think that's okay. So, so fuck it. Let's not even, I don't even think we need to qualify our statements. Like, of course yeah. we're not going to agree with everything. I fucking agree with a lot of stuff that Nozick says, you know, and he's, yeah. you know, he's a minarchist yeah. and I'm not quite there. Sure. So. so Austin, I mean, the, the same question, are you yeah. prepared to use the force of state in order to, to, to bring about your vision of society? The force of state. I mean, I don't, I don't like the idea of the force of state. Um, just from a terminological perspective, I understand where you're coming from, but yeah. um, I mean, how do you? I mean, if yeah. government doesn't have money, the only place it can get money, I suppose, is what I'm saying is, are you prepared? The use of taxation, and shit. Yeah, yeah. Are you forced? Are you prepared to forcibly redistribute wealth? Um, I waver on this because okay. I. Uh, I know that Tom Woods has talked a lot about this, particularly with regards to like the work of Spooner um, and yeah. this idea of uh, uh, of how you're not actually in a social contract. Uh, Spooner believed mm -hmm. this, who was actually at the first international. Yeah. Yeah, show me this document. Yeah, yeah, and he was alive like 80 years later, and he's like, "What the fuck? I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not in this social contract of the Constitution. I wasn't there when it was. I didn't, I didn't sign it." Um, <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, I think there's something funny about that, and I kind of like it. Um, but at the same time, I also think that there is something interesting about the argument. And I think Woods actually even supports that there's some sort of implicit contract um, that that you can derive from Locke or or something like that. That that when you engage in social relations on a landscape that has been claimed by a particular government, that you're kind of already, in a sense, engaged in a contract that you're going to be uh, a participant or that you're going to be against that, right? Like you can't be neutral on a moving train, as Howard Zinn would say. So you're either you're mm -hmm. either obeying the laws and obeying certain things, or you're against it. And I think the the thing that I appreciate about anarchists is they're kind of like, "Fuck it, I'm against it." <laughs> you know, I'm right. gonna I'm gonna create my own way of doing things, and that's where Spooner kind of comes in as a sort of libertarian anarchist type. And I think that there's something interesting about that because I too actually want to resist state power and state oppression, and I too want to uh, envision new forms of freedom out with those that are imposed upon us at, at present. But at the same time, at the same time, I also want to recognize that I do think that, that through the use of taxation or through the use of socialization, let's say the democratization of, uh, of the means of production, I do think that there is a way to kind of reclaim, if you will, um, the goods that have been expropriated or the goods that have been sort of already kind of handed out. So I think that they've already been distributed in a certain way. And so while I'm not a big fan of using distribution as a first sort of right. mentality, I understand that there are reasons for it. And and like Anthony said, he's like, I'm not really sure. I, mean, I have some ideas where maybe we could use um, some sort of centralized state in order to realize certain ends. I kind of agree with that. I'm not exactly sure what it would look like, but I'm really interested in the work of like, um, are you familiar with Paracon, which is participatory? Yeah, economics? yeah. Oh, uh, we could have a, I, I'm yeah. sorry. That book so poorly defines its terms. Oh, Michael Albert's book? I want to strangle Michael Albert for writing that book. <laughs> I know, but like I do think... He's, he's in a the uh, non-aggression. I know. Come on, man. Come on, man. Your your true human nature is coming out. We're violent fuckers, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I feel violently about that book because um, it just says capitalism does this, capitalism does that, capitalism does the other, without defining what he means by capitalism. And most of the ravages well, but he's that not, he he's discusses can be fighting. can be. Right, but he's and not, then he, he uses that. Attack, but he uses that to attack the free market. I don't right. mind 
if you criticize our system to um to to then draw the causes of those criticisms back to the primary causes and attack institutions but when you say here's a bunch of criticisms i have as the world of the world as it is and then you use those criticisms to attack the free market that is a rhetorical ploy and the reason why it gets sure. me so angry is because so many socialists do it all of the time like we have some yeah, in the but, comments but no offense, here brother, like, no offense brother libertarians do that all the time too like well, i perhaps they do but no, i can't but, answer but, for that no no but, but no but here's the point it's because it's hard it's hard to communicate a viewpoint that isn't your own i grew up in a christian household i actually was studying to be a pastor for quite a bit so i'm quite familiar with the Christian, uh, Judeo-Christian value sets with um, with libertarian ideas and philosophies because I grew up in America, in a very wealthy part of America, in Orange County, which you want to talk about people that are like, get the fuck out of my life government. Right. I grew up in that world, you know? So I'm very, sure. and I used to embody those ideas. So I feel like I have a little bit more of an empathy to the position, okay. but at the same time, it's really hard to try to communicate an idea without building a straw man. And Michael Albert's book, and I'm not trying to just defend, I think it's Michael Albert. Um, it is Michael Albert, yeah, I would I love think, to have him on our show. I think, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to really write for an audience of people who are already converted. So he's preaching yeah, to the converted. Very, yeah, and, uh, the, the, but, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, hey look, we're already socialists, we already know capitalism's bad. <laughs> we already know capitalism's bad. And, and we're trying to, to work through this. And I don't think he's trying to operate in bad faith, but at the same right. time, I think we got to be patient with fuckers, man. We're trying, right. yeah, and we're working through this together. But well, I'm more—I'm more, I'm more yeah. like this. What you describe, more patient, because I was a lefty, right? Um, I, I'm more patient than more libertarians, and I know how to speak to leftists on these issues. Right. But, um, but the fact that you find me quite impatient is also as an indication that I need to work back to where I was. There's a no, question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you're impatient. I'm saying that what we need to be more patient, just in more right. like the royal we. I think yeah, that uh, people that, in general, yeah, you need we, to understand also, yeah. that people are kind of laboring under their presumptions and it's hard for them to see out of their box. And um, I just like, right. Sorry, before we go on to the, there's a question for me and a question for you from our live audience. But before yeah. we go on to that, I think perfect example of what frustrates me is like, you know, you've got people in the comments saying, what about preventable diseases spreading due to overpriced medicine? This is the kind of straw man argument that we get from uh, socialists. It's like, why is the me uh, medicine overpriced? Is it because of the free market? Well, actually, it's the state that hands out the patents. Well, actually, the FDA has pushed the price of actually getting research through so high that it's, you know, it runs into the hundreds of millions and so many drugs are stopped before they even get through trials. There is so much, right. uh, there is so much government involvement in the medical industry that to just go, oh, well, capitalism is causing preventable diseases um, from being cured due to overpriced medicine. It's got nothing to do with capitalism. Um, and and that that's just a pair. We get that all the time. So that's why maybe I get sure. sometimes a bit impatient yeah, on these not, issues. And I understand. But Dean Baker, actually, he's an economist who wrote a book called Rigged, in which he talks about mm -hmm. part of the reasons why the um, medical costs are so crazy in the United States. And he actually talks about that, is that there is a limitation because of patents that is imposed onto medical development and pharmaceutical uh, importing and things like that. And also there's a restriction of the flow of doctors. So there's a restriction sure. of the labor market. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know, you can, um, you can the American medical, a hospital, exactly. Exactly. Uh, there's no and you have to work. Skills. 
right not enough medical schools you have to work for a certain amount of time and these are ideas that what that does is it kind of restricts the flow of uh, of labor and other kind of maybe you would call them market mechanisms that would allow for there to be a sort of competitive opening up of the market exactly. but here's the other problem this is where we need to talk about our becker though i'm sorry our stigler though and understand uh, regulatory capture so the reason that you have a lot of these restrictions are that insurance companies that yeah, is the private no sector they're the ones that are making the rules themselves so there's a yeah, law there's a law that's right. called mccarran ferguson that if mccarran ferguson doesn't get repealed insurance costs in america will continue to sky rise and sure. mccarran ferguson was constructed by the private right. sector right yeah but that's that, that's the thing about incentives right see on a free market if i've got a million pounds to invest in my business right i can go to advertising i can improve my products whatever right right if i think that will get me 1.2 million return the moment going to the government instead is going to get me 1.25 million return right on my investment the incentives drive me to regulatory capture instead of serving my customers, which is why we're for pure capitalism, where people are forced to serve their customers no, here, rather why, than to lobby why, the state. Why do you still want to call it capitalism and not something else? Like why? Free market. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm why? just using it because it's the call. Okay, let's use a free. Why do you keep calling it Marxism? Laissez-faire. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly. Maybe I should call it capitalism. Maybe I should just abandon the world. That's what I wonder. Capitalism. I do okay, wonder that. I'm cool with that. I'm just Let's using call it, it as a liberty gibbetism. I just, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> okay, yeah. free market, you can call it free market capitalism. Unfortunately, people think free market capitalism is what we have now. You can right. call it laissez-faire right. capitalism. You can call it pure capitalism. You can call it free market. Can we get on An interesting statement too. I actually think that what you're advocating for would actually fit within an umbrella that's called post-capitalism. And so, okay, well, then I'm a post-capitalist. Yeah, and I think have I'm, you have you read Jeremy Rifkin's work on uh, like zero marginal cost society? He talks about like automation and fucking three D printers and shit like that. How, no, I've not read. Yeah, it. I, I think I kind of this guy claims that eventually that, that what's going to bust capitalism is the idea that nobody's going to be able to make a buck on anything. Well, yeah, and he doesn't. So cheap. No, well, not bust it because he still thinks that capitalist relations will still exist. But his point right. is, is that that technology and automation are exponentially increasing so fast that the yeah. majority of the consumer sector is going to be driven by non-capitalist relations. Now he still well, thinks I'm, that there will be and okay. I know and that's the thing that's interesting is that again I actually don't have a problem with some of that either. So I'm actually much more inclined towards a particular sector within the Marxist literature or the Marxist movement called accelerationism. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with accelerationism? No, but I guess it's uh, trying to accelerate people to this poor scarcity society. Uh, well, no. Not to a, not not to a, a beyond scarcity. It'd be overcoming scarcity yeah, through the use right. through the use of technology and automation sure. and things like that. And so, I actually am working on a documentary we're actually filming right now. That's an adaptation of a book that was called "Inventing the Future" by Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, who are these guys who are leading advocates within this Marxist tradition that's called accelerationism, and. Um, they're interested in using the tools of technology to kind of go through capitalism, so to speak, that capitalism will eat itself up because it will constantly try to drive itself down. And because productivity we is have, uh, we have an episode on that topic. It's called Sam Harris's economically illiterate. Yeah, I actually <laughs> watched more... some of that one. I watched some oh, of that. One. Yeah, 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 yeah. We talk about that idea itself. So if people want to hear more of our perspectives on that, but I'm desperate to get our questions from the audience. Okay. Then. Okay. 
before we wrap up at under two hours. Okay. Um, under two okay. hours. Come on, brother. Let's go for three or four or five. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, first, first one for you, Anthony. I'll go. Francis Mark McGuire asks um, if libertarianism hypothetically made everyone worse off in terms of living standards, would you change your opinion of libertarianism? Everyone. How can any system make everyone worse off? So, uh, well, communism did a good they, job. They, they would, they would, well, there was a few people that benefited right, okay, from communism. Yeah, so yeah. there would be, um, why would people even get involved in those relations? The, the whole point is people get voluntary. So it's like kind of asking me, if a square was a circle, would you still be for squares? I would yeah, say I mean, it's, it's a little wait, bit let, of, it's a loaded question. Let me, it's, it, I'm, I'm being a bit question. facetious. Yeah. Let, me just, let me just answer the principle of the question. The principle of the question is, if libertarianism led to worse outcomes, would you still be for it? Because I seem like I'm making a lot of utilitarian arguments. Now, I do accept the moral superiority of libertarianism. Sorry, do not initiate force. I accept the non-aggression principle. <laughs> and people say, well, how can you just have principles? What if your principles lead to bad things? I would say this is where I bridge the gap between consequentialism and deontology deontologism, which is if they consistently lead to bad results, they're bad principles. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that, that would be my, I think the principles are good. Occasionally they might lead to less good results for some people some of the time, but broadly speaking, you can rely on those principles to produce good outcomes over time. And that's why I'm a deontologist. Yeah, I mean, so, I think the question is kind of assuming a cart before the horse sort of thing. You mm -hmm. are a libertarian because you believe that libertarianism will lead to better social arrangements. And so the presumption that, well, would you be a libertarian if it led to bad uh, bad social outcomes to you is a sort of contradiction of terms, right? Right, to a degree, but I wouldn't say that I purely agree with libertarianism because I think it would lead to better outcomes. I think that it's moral and that it eschews the use of force and coercion. You might disagree with my definitions of force and coercion, but that's where I'm coming from. There's yeah. a question for you as well. Yeah. Well, just first, first of all, just quickly on, on, on the same questions, basically yeah. for yourself, would you hold? Would you continue to hold to your worldview if you if it was demonstrable that it, it continually led to uh, the lowering of living standards? No, of course not. Okay. I don't give a fuck. Okay. I don't give a fuck. I'm I'm not a dogmatist about anything. Like literally, that's I I, I yeah. Of course, I would. I'm always okay. about changing my mind. So here's another. It's a question for both of you. But we'll start with you, Austin. Um, yep. Wouldn't a global free market be more likely? This is from eight seventy Scott. Wouldn't a global free market be more likely to descend into a Hobbesian war of all against all? Surely the state. <laughs> police, prisons, army, and so on, are uh, the only things standing between us and chaos and violence. Oh, Jesus. Oh. A little thrown out the hobs, huh? Nasty is, or life is yeah. nasty, short, and brutish. Um, here's the problem. I don't believe in human nature. So okay. I think that we are constructed through uh, all the various sort of apparatuses. Foucault calls them dispositifs, which are apparatuses that construct us. Okay. Uh, it's education, it's the medical system, it's the psychiatric system, it's the family unit, uh, it's the, the notions of governmentality, that our bodies 
our very beings as as humans are constructed by our social relations. And I think this fits well. There's a wonderful neuroendocrinologist by the name of Robert uh, Sapolsky, I believe is how you say his last name. Yeah, I've seen him yeah he's YouTube. great. Yeah, he's great. Um, he's written a couple of amazing books um, that you should check out. And one of the things that he does is he he kind of like confronts the the issues that sort of dominate science today with regards to like reductive evolutionary biology and these ideas that you know either either humans just act because they want to fuck or either they act because they want to preserve their own uh sort of power or whatever and he says listen we are these radical complex creatures who have yeah. consciousness that yeah i guess what we do have biological drives so freud is right but at the same time yeah our biological drives are refracted through our socio-constructed linguistic structures. And so we change them. So we are different. We are literally different are. all the time. And so I don't, I don't know that we would just descend into a sort of radical Hobbesian nature. My, my problem with the radical free market isn't that we would, it would like release these uh, Hobbesian nasty flows that exist as humans essentially are, but rather that what the market does is it constructs us in a particular way that turns us into those sort of Hobbesian creatures. That's the issue. Okay. And how do you, what's your answer to that? Um, I disagree. I think the market, if it may, okay, so this is the idea that socialists may say, well, these libertarians, they say they're against um, social, what would you call it, social, when the government, social engineering. Mm -hmm. But the market socially engineers people. The market has a certain dynamic in it which is going to socially engineer people. I don't think it's going to socially engineer people in a negative way because it's fundamentally social it says that you're it's win-win or no deal and i don't think that it creates predatory capitalism because what what people don't understand is when people are trying to make a profit they're trying to sell serve their customers and they have to submit their individual will to otherwise they wouldn't spend billions on market research to find out what their customers wanted uh, okay so the, the 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 free market no doubt is going to um, alter how we interact as human beings, but I think largely for the good. I think um, having any central planning type structures and things like that are more likely to influence people, human nature for the bad because uh, certain patterns of doing things are going to get entrenched and the people who are going to look to rise to the top of those hierarchies are going to be the most pernicious and it's not necessarily going to be based on merit, based on their ability to um, perform tasks but based on their language skills whereas right. when you've got a bottom line and a profit you if you're not doing a good job if you've not got the skills you're more likely to be replaced by someone who has I mean obviously some assholes are going to slip through the net but that's always going to happen in any system so I don't disagree with you that there's a kind of uh, social engineering in the market system, but I think it will probably be the least bad we, we, we can hope for. And what if we could better. do? Do you think we could do better though? Because here, here would be my question: Is okay? So, market social engineering um, is better than totalitarian social engineering, sure. right? Is it, there a third way? Is, is there? Well, is I there, think is there as soon as better? you coercion into the picture, it's like it's it's like the speed limit. It's like see if you take a plastic bottle and crush it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You can try and blow it up again into its original shape, but the volume will always be less. I see right. coercion as a force like that. I think the, the more you, it's only going to make the volume of the vessel less. So given that you only have a choice between voluntary interactions 
and um, coercive interactions, I think any coercion is going to poison to, to the degree that you introduce coercion. Now, you can do things that you might see as coercion, like if there's too much of a concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, and blackball them, you know, or, or come up with a great idea and appeal to their better nature, you know, say, we'll build a statue to you if you, you know, support our project. And that's voluntary. You can stop trading with them. You can exclude them from, and, and I guess that's kind of coercive, but it's still voluntary. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just don't want the use of uh, of, of force to be introduced. Sure. Into yeah, yeah, and I, I think this kind of goes to the heart of kind of the distinction between maybe like the free will, libertarian notion of free will, and then radical mm -hmm. hardline determinism of like exactly. Daniel Dennett, and what we would call maybe a compatibilism, which is that you're free, but you're only free within certain conditions. And so the strange thing is, is I know, what do you call yourself? The libertarian hippie? Is that what you call yourself? Uh, Okay, I love it. I, I actually like it because I think that I've read a couple of things that you've said where you talk a lot about mutual cooperation mm -hmm. and you talk a little bit about things like that. I almost feel like your libertarianism is a very soft, it's non-Randian. It, it's, it's maybe because it was, I love Rand, by the way, and I, I know, agree but, with Rand on many Well, he's, I'm, he's I'm more sure. humanitarian, I'm more brutalist. Yeah. No. You are. Okay. Yeah. No. So you seem to be a little bit more interested in cooperation, which is why, even though you might disagree with someone like Chomsky, I think you would be interested in reading some of his things because he's interested yeah, no, in. No, I, I like a lot of his yeah. analyses. Yeah. And so you're kind of, you're kind of, I don't know, you're almost like a, an evangelical Christian who thinks that, um, and, and uh, hold on, and not with, without the metaphysical beliefs. Okay. Um, but you're kind of like an evangelical Christian who's like, listen, the church should just kind of donate to the poor. Just let us do our thing. And we still want to mutually cooperate with each other because human beings, you know, we like each other and we can we can do things yeah. good for each other. But, but let's go right to be antisocial, but it's gonna it's gonna to be to your detriment on a free market to be antisocial. But you still have got the right to if you want to. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, what's another do we have more questions that you want to get through? I think talk? we should wrap up. I think we'll wrap up. I don't have really any, any further okay. uh, questions. Uh, final Thanks. question. You said you were you Christian background, you trained to be a pastor. It wasn't Calvary Chapel, was it? Yeah, actually, I grew up at a Calvary Chapel for a little bit, but then I, yeah, I, thought, I, I thought that. Yeah, but then, but then I moved out of Calvary Chapel, um, and uh, my father fell in love with what's called Reformed theology. You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Calvin is the Puritan okay. and whatnot. Yeah. And so then, when I went to school, I actually went to a school that was a Reformed uh, theological education. Oh, so, man. so you get that whole five points of Calvinism shit. That's right, you? tulip, okay. tulip, brother. Yeah, tulip, man. That's it. Okay. So then that's why you don't believe in free will then. <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. While I was at my school, they, uh, you know, obviously total depravity is the sort of the T in tulip. Yeah. They, they deny free will. And I thought that that was a bunch of bunk. Um, but I, I was really interested in working through the compatibilism between free will and, uh, and indeterminism. But actually, no, the reason right. that I don't believe in free will is much more based on my research in neuroscience and understanding mediatory relations and how language conditions how we interact with things ultimately. And that's why I kind of reject the notion of free will or like radical free will. You know? How can you possibly reject it if you don't have free will though? <laughs> well, but that's the point is, is you're free within conditions, but it's not the libertarian right. notion of freedom. It's not freedom okay. uh, without any constraints whatsoever. Okay, well, Austin, I have to thank you so much for coming on the show and hashing so many issues. Uh, 
Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't give you the opportunity to ask more questions. No, it's okay. Uh, but but there will always be another opportunity. Yeah, I'd love to get you in again. One. I think next time we'll have like a premise so that you can there'll be something to argue about. Yeah, right. what if next time we just do let's just talk about theories of value and that's it. Sure. You know. Now, before we go, I just want to plug. I've just started another podcast for our listeners. It's called Be Yourself and Love It. It's a personal development podcast. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in improving your own life using whatever limited free will you have. You never told me about this. <laughs> Where did what happens to me? What's my contribution to this? I'll still see you on Thursdays. You bitch. <laughs> right. But please, if you can't get enough of Anthony Samaroff, I'm now doing two podcasts a week. Also this one and the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes so I'm not talking to myself. <laughs> thank you everyone for tuning in thank you for all your comments and uh, we'll see you next time thank you austin peace of course <laughs>